Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Quantumner's Freedom International live stream. And with me are my best buddies in podcasting. Our, we have Steve from Asia, Awakened Mind. We have Mary, she's a pharmacist and she is in um, Florida and Hartmut from Germany. And our guest today is um, a world renowned expert in fasting, especially water only fasting, and Dr. Alan Goldhammer. And I thank Dr. Goldhammer because he's a very busy person and here he is joining us and see and sharing all his knowledge and wisdom. So thank you for being with us, Dr. Goldhammer. My pleasure. So he, as I said, he is the world's leading expert on medically supervised water only fasting. And um, if you check him out in a lot of his videos, he's just very articulate and clear in, in his ways of why water fasting is important and who qualifies or who can do water fasting. And he is also the founder and director of True North Healing Center in Santa Rosa, California. So Santa Rosa people are lucky because they could be there right in the facility. Although True North Healing has also a program for distance uh, help for people that are not just in United States, but around the world. And he will talk to us many things that could really help us um, bring out the best in our health and what, in whatever stage we are in. So um, their facility, if you look at it, covers a lot of services, including um, from just many, many, um, let's say, alternative interventions, bringing them all together so that it's not just you do the fasting there and then they let you go like wild people and then you cannot be healthy again, but it's up to you. And one thing that he did say is that they really like to work with people who are really passionate, passionate and let's say motivated, strongly motivated to be healthy. And I guess that's what we want also, because sometimes it gets tiring already to keep trying to help people and they don't really want to help. So thank you, Dr. Goldhammer. So how about even if I said many powerful things, truth about you, how about you start with, how did you start with your journey? Did I hear it right that you started it when you were 16 years old? So what brought you to that journey of wellness? Yeah, actually, I was just trying to be a better basketball player, and I was so desperate to beat my friend Doug Wilde that I started reading books. And I thought, you know, maybe I could get an edge if I could get healthier than he was. Maybe I could beat him. And I read a book by Herbert Shelton, and it was interesting because it, it pointed out that the health was kind of the result of specific actions. And that those actions included things like the diet that you ate, the activities that you engaged in, the amount of sleep that you got. And he also talked about fasting as a way of undoing the consequences that of what was very common uh, dietary excess so that people would consume too much of the wrong things, develop illnesses, and that fasting would be a way of kind of giving the body a chance to recalibrate itself. And so I thought that sounded very interesting and I diligently applied the principles he recommended that as a diet from whole plant foods that avoided salt, oil, and sugar, uh, engaged in uh, appropriate exercise and sleep, and, and tried to do some fasting. And the problem is it failed uh, miserably because Dr. Lyle also adopted the same principles and still to this day, uh, many decades later, he still beats me mercilessly every time we play basketball. I'm 62 years old, I still, 
I'm hoping maybe he'll age out somewhat quicker or something. Maybe by the time we get to the our 80s, I'll be able to finally beat him. But even though it was a complete failure, it did give me an interest and insight into this idea of health from healthful living. And I was also motivated by uh, my uncle, who was a physician, who thought this was the most ridiculous, stupid thing in the entire world, this idea that diet and lifestyle would, would be a helpful thing. In fact, when I had decided to pursue this kind of field as a career, he was vehemently opposed. He said I was not going to go into alternative medicine, that nobody in our family would go to a doctor like that, let alone become a doctor like that. He said, better I should be a communist spy. I <laughs> uh, was very, very upset about it. My father, who was a serious guy, uh, took me aside. I remember he said, son, I, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine business, but anything that makes him that angry and mad can't be bad. So you stick to your guns. And uh, ultimately, when I did get out of school, my father was one of the first benefactors of my um, new knowledge and uh, ended up doing some fasting and overcame some very serious health problems and ultimately lived a long uh, and productive life. So it actually worked out fine. But uh, unfortunately, still, the main motivation, which is beating Dr. Lyle in basketball, has not been achieved. <laughs> well, that, that's a beautiful story. And yes, by, I forgot to mention that, that uh, Dr. Goldhammer is also a co-author of, that's the title of our you know, conversation today, The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force That Undermines Health and Happiness. And uh, that was also for, uh, the foreword from Dr. John McDougall and many of you who have been looking for ways to be healthy, you you know those names are familiar. So and so yeah, there is beautiful story, family story, and um, I re I remember a number of people who I think each of us have that little experiences from our family who thinks we're crazy, who thinks we're crazy when we start doing something, and then they start really like annoying us. Then do, if we just let it be and continue to do it on our life and they see that they were much healthier than all the others, then suddenly they start listening and they start now paying attention. So, and the first benefit, and you're right, the benefits, the beneficiaries will be the immediate family, immediate friends. So for all of you there, yeah, so keep listening and keep doing what you're doing with your family, because before you know it, they will be <laughs> with you in this journey. Um, and, and, and Dr. Goldhammer, uh, how I learned about the True North, um, your, the center, is actually this is how popular your program is or the entire concept is a friend from Lithuania. So many months ago, and he did tell me, I said, Grace, go and check out True North um, then, you know, the, and invite one of them. So I, I'm, I'm lucky and blessed that I've already had one of your chefs, that Chef Ramses, bravo. So, yes, because I thought, let me invite him first because people love to talk about food. So let's check him out. And so you, you did a fabulous job and with, it might be you who really influenced him as well. Um, so who are the, what are the types of people you attract or can anyone, be, can anyone do the water fast? Um, who are who has a lot of medications, let's say. So how would that person begin? 
So, you know, fasting is an interesting process. It's not surprising that the people that get the most benefit from fasting are the people that have conditions that are brought on or aggravated by dietary excess. So people that have obesity and type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disturbances, and some conditions like lymphoma, all are conditions that we know are aggravated by poor dietary choices. So it's not shocking to find out that they're the very conditions that respond the most quickly uh, and the most effectively to the use of fasting. So the first thing we would do uh, for a person that's interested in whether fasting is appropriate for them is we need to review their medical history, uh, do a physical exam and collect some laboratory data. And then we can determine with some level of uh, accuracy who's a good candidate, how long should they need to fast, and get, establish the baseline data necessary to monitor that process safely and effectively. Not everybody's a good candidate uh, for fasting. Fasting can be um, a very vigorous process, and you need to have uh, you know, appropriate um, stability in order to be able to undergo fasting. So a person, for example, on a lot of medications, you wouldn't fast people on uh, most medications. So you'd first have to make diet and lifestyle changes in order to reduce the need for medications, withdraw those medications in a controlled setting, and then introduce the fasting. Um, if a person had medications that couldn't be withdrawn, then you'd have to do a different type of a program, a modified fasting that would allow them to continue to take uh, medications that haven't been withdrawn successfully. What's interesting though, is that most people that are on medications are not on medications so much for their condition as for their diet. And so as soon as you change their diet, the need for medications begins to change and you have to withdraw. You know, if you're on high blood pressure medications, you're on blood pressure medications because of what you put in your mouth. And as soon as you change what you put in your mouth, the need for medication changes. And if you don't withdraw the medications, you end up having problems from too much medications, which creates as many problems uh, as uh, sometimes the condition itself. So what we do is we have everybody first go on our website and fill out a registration form, which gets us their medical history. And we offer them a no cost phone conversation with me. And so I'll go through their medical history, make a determination whether or not they're a good candidate for this type of an approach. If so, either recommend they come to True North Health Center or refer them to one of the doctors that might be you know, closer to them and appropriate for their condition. Uh, once they come in, they're all working with one of our medical staff. They'll have a history exam and lab in detail performed. They'll see doctors twice a day during their stay for evaluation purposes. We go through kind of intense education while they're there in terms of classes and whatnot. And then after the fasting period is completed, we could range from anywhere from five to 40 days. Then they go through refeeding. You have to be very careful in refeeding after fasting to avoid refeeding syndrome and other problems. And um, then they would return home where we uh, hopefully can provide them, you know, remote support through our telemedicine support and whatnot. And the idea is to get people to stick to a health-promoting diet long enough to get the long-term results so they make us look good. Did you say 5 to 45 days? So does it mean that... 5 to 40 days. We don't fast over 40 days normally. Oh, 5 to 40. So the minimum could be 5 days. Well, there is no... Minimum, no? But, you know, typically, water fasting, it takes a few days to get into the fast where you know where you're at. So it would be unusual to be fasting less than... Five, it'd be very unusual to be fasting over 40. 99% of fasts will fall between five and 40 days. Okay, and that's in your program. Uh, I, I did water fast twice, and that was before I even know that your program existed because I Dr. Furman was my 
physician mm -hmm. before he became famous. And so really before he became so famous, he had this- you know that Dr. Furman was our first medical intern at the True North Health Center when he was a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh, see, uh, well, I didn't know That's that- Small world. Oh, correct. And uh, so I live in Princeton and I was connected with, uh, let's see, you know, the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. So I was really looking for a doctor. And although I work in the hospital, none of those doctors became my primary doctor. I was in search for the doctor whom I believe in and we won't be fighting. So he was in the Montgomery. So that's when I knew that he was doing the um, assisting people and he would, uh, I, I believe, in, in, in his house before. Um, <laughs> although, Although he didn't manage me, I did it on my own. I, I told him, I promise. And he said, Grace, can you really do it? I says, yes, I promise I will behave. I will take off from work. So for the first week, I didn't take off. Then after that, because it seems like on the first week, I still have the strength. But after well, that- Unfortunately, you don't want to be working and in, in active when you're fasting, because what that does is it increases the amount of gluconeogenesis that has to take place to maintain the necessary glucose for the extra activity of your muscles and brain. And that means you're breaking down proteins. You may have the strength, but you're actually going to contraindicate. It's contraindicative in terms of what you're actually trying to accomplish with the fasting, which is mobilizing accumulated intermediary products of metabolism and toxic products and giving the body a chance to process them. That's a very significant mistake that many people make uh, when they're fasting on their own is that they're much too active. It leads to not only gluconeogenesis, but also it can contribute to dehydration and other problems. So it is important that when we talk about water-only fasting, prolonged water-only fasting and its results, that it, we keep it in context that it be done in a safe and an appropriate way. That means there's been a history exam, appropriate laboratory monitoring and an environment of complete rest. Now, for people that want to fast on their own, there is things they can do safely on their own. We think everybody should fast every day, actually. For 12 to 16 hours. So by limiting your feeding window to say eight to 12 hours a day, you induce some of the fasting changes on a small level, on a safe level, on a level that people can do on their own at home every day. And cumulatively over the course of a year, that means they've had 365 12 to 16 hour fasts. And even that brief amount of fasting is thought to induce changes that may be very beneficial. Uh, Dr. Walter Longo from USC has done some tremendous work showing the impact that intermittent fasting can have with people. But what I'm talking about is generally long-term water-only fasting. That needs to be done uh, after history exam lab and in a controlled setting. Well, was uh, Dr. Bardis also part of your team when, uh, in, in Pennsylvania? Dr. Bernard? Bar no, Bar Bardis, because he now, Dr. Bartis, B-A-R-T-I-S-S, because he is also, he has also this, uh, it's not he's not his focus is not on water fast but he has this integrative center for cancer and he's also connected with dr Furman. he said oh he's my intern also <laughs> no i don't know him well anyway well, bernard from pcr and he's one of my heroes uh dr bernard is uh, yeah. uh done so much in terms of raising public and professional awareness of the importance of the whole plant food diet and has just been really courageous in his willingness to you know tell the truth and not not to worry too much about the consequences of that okay well i'm going to pass it on to steve because everyone has a lot of you know 
interesting questions and comments so that the rest of our viewers could benefit as well. And I, I thank you again for being with us today. Steve? Wow, Dr. Goldhammer, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I did a cleanse in Thailand uh, that was based on Dr. Bernard Jensen, a guy who had cancer, read his book, and he started a cleanse in Koh Samui, and that's sort of the cleansing capital of, uh, of the, you know, it's not a water fast, but it's a fast and a detox, and it's very interesting. And that, that was in uh, 2003, and that, that really sent me on, and I had read, um, gotten into Robert O. Young about alkalinity, and, and you know, I've helped my mom beat, you know, things. So uh, I was watching one of your videos and we, we, all, we all know about the loyal opposition. You know, we could call them uh, the, the big pharma, but where you, you had a patient who was, uh, had lymphoma and you did a test and you, you know, uh, long story short, the lymphoma was gone through the water fast. You wrote a paper, the paper was accepted. So I'm just like, have you been attacked? I mean, I have a lot of stuff, but I, I mean, we could have let into this, but I'm just kind of curious is there sort of some opening up of the big pharma allowing actual methods that work and, and you know, reverse disease into the uh, market? Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Our paper on the effective treatment of follicular lymphoma uh, that you referenced was the first paper that was ever published by BMJ. I, I think anything even remotely like that. We also managed to get a three-year follow-up uh, to that case uh, published as well. And, and all of that, that, those papers and all of our papers, you know, people that want to look, they can go to fasting.org, which is the compendium, fasting compendium side of our foundation. And all of our research and all of the, everybody's research on fasting uh, is referenced on that site. It's searchable and readily available. So for people interested in looking at uh, the increasing amount of data that's become available, uh, we do have a, a place where people can access that freely and, and easily. Is that on your website? It's a, uh, there's a separate website called fast at fasting.org, fasting.org. And that's the fasting compendium website of the True North Health Foundation, our 501c3 nonprofit research foundation. And that is where we post uh, our, our the results of our studies and other people's studies, including people like Walter Longo and others. Wow. So, I mean, me, because I'm kind of into this stuff. I was, so uh, to me, there's a lot of, ways to get to where you want to go in terms of health and, you know, revitalizing yourself. And um, I'm, I'm just, I think uh, water fasting is a marvel for what I know, and I want to get more into it. The thing you had mentioned that, you know, no, no salt. And I would, the question I have just for more from me is to me, there's a link. I know there's a link between, you know, disease and low oxygen and low voltage and, uh, you know, toxicity and, and, and acidity. Um, to me, is it, I would have thought, you know, I know I would have thought salt is somewhat necessary, Sari, to raise the voltage of, of our electric body. But are you, when you say no salt, do you mean like no Morton's processed salt or no, no Mediterranean sea salt? Yeah. So what I'm saying is that sodium is an essential nutrient without which you would die. And carbohydrates are necessary nutrients without which you would uh, eventually succumb. And uh, protein uh, are essential nutrients for their amino acids. And essential fatty acids are necessary in order for you to survive. And all of the fat, protein, and sodium that you need come from whole plant foods. So if you get your 2,000 calories from fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, 
you get the quantity and quality of nutrients you need. You don't need to eat sugar to get enough carbohydrate. You can get enough carbohydrate from eating whole plant foods. You don't need to eat um, oil in order to get enough essential fatty acids. You can eat foods that contain oil, like avocados and nuts and seeds and green vegetables, et cetera. And you don't need to add refined salt in order to get enough sodium because it turns out all plants have sodium concentration. If you get your diet sufficient uh, from whole plant foods, you get the gram of salt that you need a day. You don't need to add salt any more than you need to add sugar. And when you add sugar, um, there are problems that ensue. And when you add um, oil, there are problems that ensue. And when you add any fractionated foods, so that's why we advocate a whole plant food diet that's SOS free. SOS stands for the chemicals that are added to food that fool the satiety mechanisms and make people fat, sick, and miserable. And those are salt, oil, and sugar. You don't need mm -hmm. any of them. We advocate avoiding all of them. And we can talk about the problems with each of them. Excess salt is a major problem with obesity, for example. And you might say, why? How could salt, which has no calories, contribute to obesity? And the reason is because of its effect on what's called passive overeating. If you give an animal or a human, say rice or any food, they'll eat a certain amount before they feel satiated. If you, everything else being equal, you salt that uh, with added salt, you'll eat more before you reach satiety, before you feel satisfied. And people say, yeah, because it tastes better. Well, that's what tasting better is, is artificially stimulating dopamine production in the brain that induces a bigger pleasure response, like we talked about in our book, The Pleasure Trap. And so as a consequence, people will eat systematically more with heavily salted foods than they would with whole natural foods. It contributes to passive overeating obesity. Salt also, about a third of the population are very efficient stores of salt. And that was necessary in a natural setting because salt's an essential nutrient without which you die. And so you're designed to detect salt at very small quantities and hold on to it. But when you add salt to food, when you add fractionated salt, those people still hold that salt very effectively. And they are largely the people that develop high blood pressure, edema, congestive heart failure, non-healing wounds, et cetera. And as a consequence, the sodium contributes to the very major contributing cause of death and disability in our society. Salt also alters the gut microbiome. Think about this. You have five pounds of bacteria living in your gut right now. That's a trillion creatures, living, eating, drinking, and defecating creatures. Those organisms are pooing inside your intestinal tract right now. And what they poo inside you depends largely what you feed them. If you feed them animal products as a base of your diet, meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, you'll get a lot of TMA, which becomes TMAO, trimethylamine oxidase, which is why meat eaters perhaps get so much colon cancer and heart disease. If you feed them soluble fibers, which is what they're designed to eat, you get fertilizer, you get vitamin K and all the stuff that you expect to get from the microbiome. When you add salt, in, think about how salt is used. Why do people salt meat? To keep the bacteria from breaking it down as quickly. It's add, added as a preservative. What do you think what happens when you put an artificially high sodium concentration into a mix of uh, a trillion microorganisms? It's going to have its effects. It alters the microbiome. It alters your body's ability to maintain uh, defense immunological functions. So this added sodium has all kinds of downstream effects, even though the salt itself is an essential nutrient, the concentration of it can be um, detrimental. And so that's why whole plant food, SOS-free diet is the recommendations we make. When people do that, the body starts doing what it does best, and that's heal itself. Wow, that's awesome. So just so I know, in your you as a guy, you know, you're busy, 
do you if you make your food do you ever put salt on it like you know sea salt or something that's from the earth no we make all of our uh, foods whole plant foods without sos no chemicals added to the food at all including salt oil or sugar now we get plenty of sodium in the diet because we eat lots of things like vegetables which are naturally high in sodium some are really high like tomatoes and celery and chard and kale in fact once you get your palate cleared out you can taste the sodium in something like swiss charge very powerfully after fasting people go oh my gosh there's so much salt in this well it's the same salt that's always been there they just weren't able to tell in fact yeah. there's a study at the true north health center that showed that if you detect minimum threshold of sodium and, and sugar and you compare it before and after fasting there's a profound change in your ability to detect salt and sugar and your likingness of salty fatty sweet fatty food changes after fasting good foods start to taste good and those foods that you used to think you really craved and liked um actually are so salty that they're actually not appealing this the, the soup at the typical restaurant you know is so salty once your palate is neuroadapted that it's no longer desirable. So it makes it easier to get people off the salty, fatty, sugary, highly processed, fractionated foods post-fasting because good foods now taste good. Wow, I'm never gonna look at my um, Mediterranean sea salt grinder uh, the same way again. Uh, so I'm gonna ask, uh, these are like, I'm totally into this. So, you know, there's this thing about, um, I've seen people who say, don't eat olive oil, don't eat any oils, it'll kill you, it's killing you. And then there's this thing where your brain needs, you know, 60 grams of fat, whatever that means. Maybe it does need fat. So my curiosity is when you're on the water fast, um, uh, I, and I have a friend who's done it twice, and he, he just swears by it. And he did it online. And he got, you know, he said there was a, something where, you, you know, your blood sugar can go low. And, and you know, they, they do monitor some things. But my question is, what does it look like in terms of how much water you're drinking a day and on what time schedule? And does your... Does is it obviously it's proven, but is there any need? Does your brain really need fat? And do we really need protein like everyone thinks we do? That's a few questions. But, you know, yes, your brain does need essential fatty acids. The essential fatty acids are called essential fatty acids because they're essential. And you get all the essential fatty acids you need by eating a whole plant food diet. Some foods like walnuts and flax seeds and green vegetables and purslane are very rich in those essential fatty acids. But all of the foods have them. If you get all of your calories from whole foods, most people are going to be able to get the quantity and quality of essential fatty acids they need. And you certainly don't need to eat oil in order to be able to, you know, get the fats you need, if you're, especially if you're including fat-rich foods in the diet, like nuts and seeds. And, and these foods are, are very rich and abundant in these materials. So, yes, you, 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 it's true. Your brain does need essential fats uh, and other nutrients. And, in fact, in fasting, even though you're fasting for up to 40 days, you still need those essential nutrients. It's just you're using them in a recycling uh, fashion. The body recycles those nutrients very effectively mm -hmm. in fasting, including so even things like vitamin C. For example, if you just ate bread, uh, you would develop scurvy over a period of time because bread has no C. But on fasting, you don't see scurvy. So you'd actually survive longer fasting than, than eating uh, isolated foods uh, in terms of nutrient deficiency. You don't see... Uh, nutrient deficiencies when fasting is done and monitored properly. Now, I've done this 21,000 times in the last 39 years with, with 21,000 uh, patients. So we have extensive experience doing it. We've actually published what's called a fasting safety study, which is the first study looking at long-term uh, fact, factors of adverse events in water-only fasting. And we've identified um, 
the uh, using uh, uh, the common criteria for uh, from the American Cancer Society, the standards that are used for fasting safety studies, we have analyzed all of the symptoms of all of the patients over a five-year period of time that underwent fasting, classified each of the symptoms according to one of the five categories, including uh, mild to serious to death. And in that paper actually, for the first time, really shows that fasting can in fact be done uh, safely and effectively when it uses this protocol, which requires history exam lab and monitoring. Um, and so for people interested in the safety of fasting, they can go on to fasting.org and actually download the study and see for themselves what the, uh, what the outcome data is. What was your other uh, question? Uh, what's it like? What if someone's on your water fast every day? How much water are they drinking on what time frame? And is it just water? And that is it? Well, it's fractionally steam distilled water. So we're actually taking water, running it through pre-filter, distilling it, and then running it through post-filter. Because it turns out people are really sensitive in fasting. They will not tolerate municipal water and water with a lot of garbage in it. They really just want pure water, which is what rainwater would be if our environment and atmosphere wasn't so polluted. Um, so what the water concentration that's needed for a given individual varies. Now, the way we tell that is we're monitoring things like urine output and specific gravity and monitoring a person's vitals and, and their hydration status, including blood work, that gives us an idea of where hydration status is. It's very important that hydration be maintained during fasting because the way the body detoxifies in fasting is the blood, which contains the toxic products, is purified by the kidneys, and it's eliminated in something called urine. And if you don't have enough water, you can't produce the urine, and therefore you can't get the toxins out of the body. That's why if you read recently, one of the big advocates of dry fasting passed away from kidney failure because <laughs> he followed his own advice, which was to do dry fasting. And in dry fasting, there is no solute. And so it's, it's, not, uh, it's, it's easy to overload the kidney's ability to keep up. You go into kidney failure and then you die. So not a good, we don't recommend that. Mm -hmm. What we do recommend is that you get at least, in our clinic, we have at least 40 ounces of water a day and however much it takes in order to maintain uh, normal specific gravity and, and hydration. You don't want to just force water because that can flush out electrolytes. You can get what's called water uh, toxicity or water intoxication. So there's a there's a fast with waters and lemon like water and lemons and I, I think that's really I heard well, that's that. not really a fast that's a modified feeding regime as long as if you get as, li as little as 10 mils of carbohydrate that alters the fasting process dramatically a lot of the things we talk about in fasting don't occur in modified fast they occur in water only fast a lot of the conservation that occurs in the body requires to be water only fasting so let me be really clear all of the cases that we're citing the studies that we're publishing and the outcomes that we're seeing have a very specific protocol that includes the uh, exclusive use of water only uh, in an environment of rest under supervision. As soon as you start mucking with it, you start putting lemon in the water, you start taking supplements, you, now you run into a completely different cascade of risk factors. For example, um, we use potassium as one of the rate limiting nutrients in fasting. We monitor potassium. If potassium gets too low, then we terminate the fasting process. Now, some people say, well, why don't you just give potassium? That'll take care of the potassium. Well, that's true, but there's maybe 20 other nutrients you're not able to monitor that are less sensitive than potassium. And so if you supplement potassium and then you run into rate-limiting other nutrients, you get into deficiency problems that would be prevented by using our protocol, but are not being prevented because you can't measure everything. It's not possible to measure all of those. So you have to find the most sensitive rate-limiting nutrients 
use those as markers and you don't have to monitor the things that are going to be uh, potentially a problem. And that's where some of my colleagues in the medical profession got into trouble with fasting. And some of the few cases you see where people are damaged from fasting is because they were letting their arrogance exceed their ignorance and didn't uh, take into account that there's you know, a logical chain of monitoring that needs to be done. And just by supplementing people with exogenous nutrients doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. It just solves the one problem that they think is the one that they're concerned about. That's interesting. So I've, I would call it a detox because it's not in, in fast for you is a much different word. So I've detoxed for 21 days where it's a lot, you know, it's on a schedule based on this thing I did in Thailand and I'm taking in, you know, some wheatgrass powder, but really no food, no solids. And it's really just wheatgrass powder and water. And, um, and you know, and my experience is, uh, you know, the first few days mentally, four days, five days is a little bit, you know, that's the most challenging. Then after that, it's kind of easy and you don't even want food. What does someone experience? Well, I, there's the all reason, different. Yeah, mm -hmm. the reason you don't want food, whether it's a water fast or a modified fast, or even if you go on these high protein, high fat diets, the keto paleo type diets that are sometimes advocated, is you get what's called a fasting mimicking effect. And in water fasting, when you go on a water fast, within 48 hours, you've depleted your glycogen stores and your brain changes from burning its normal fuel, which is glucose, to burning uh, a byproduct of fat, uh, ketones, or more specifically, beta-hydroxybutyric acid. And when your brain is burning BHB, um, there's a hunger blunting mechanism that occurs with fasting. So people on a water fast, by the end of the second or third day, really have no hunger. I mean, these patients are going to cooking classes. Oh, that's and, cool. And if you're talking to people in the dining room, they have really, yeah. it's generally, there is no physiological hunger once you get into, into ketosis. Or if you go on these diets, that's where the dead Dr. Atkins diet can, can help people short term for weight loss because they'll go on the diet. They don't have much hunger. They're already been eating meat two or three times a day anyway, but they stop eating carbohydrates. So, so for temporarily, they may lose weight. The problem is it's not a long term sustainable health promoting diet. Going on a high fat protein, high fat diet may result in short term weight loss but it's gonna result in long-term health compromise. So we don't recommend that people do that, but they're playing off of the fasting mimicking effect of hunger yeah. that occurs from being in a ketotic state. Interesting, so you answered my, you saw, you listened and you heard my question, which I, I wasn't that clear, but that was the thing. I was wondering, is there a hunger element to this water fast, you know, without having anything? And that's quite amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, I got to try it. So um, I have a couple more questions. Just real quick, there's a theory about lectins. And is this true that, you know, like if you eat a plant that has defensive lectins, it's bad for you? All plants have defensive components. Lectins are proteins that are one of those defendants. There are people that have sensitivities to various proteins. I mean, the most commonly recognized is gluten. Um, you know, if you have 1% uh, of the population have what's called celiac disease, where if they eat gluten, the body's immune system attacks their digestive system, it can be a life-threatening, very serious problem. The answer is don't eat gluten. So people, you know, avoid wheat, rye, yeah. barley, or high gluten grains, and they uh, generally do better. Some people, their immune system doesn't attack their colon, but it might attack their thyroid. And that's called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease where your immune system is attacking your own thyroid. That's what most hypothyroidism is. 
And there is a theory that the gene associated with hypothyroidism, the HLA-DQ gene, happens to be the same gene associated with gluten sensitivity. And so some people have postulated that in 1% of the population, the gluten triggers celiac disease. But in another percentage of the population, it might trigger Hashimoto's thyroiditis or arthritis or other digestive challenges. And so, I mean, we don't happen to use gluten-based grains in our program anyway. We, we, if you look at our cookbooks, they're all gluten-free and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that's just because there is a significant percentage of people that don't do well with those particular proteins. Now, as far as lectins and all grains, yes, there are some people that are so sensitive to these various proteins that they just need to avoid that whole class of food. They just, and that's fine. Okay. More starchy vegetables, not a problem. For most people, they can eat the non-glutinous grains. They're going to do fine. Some people may not be able to eat them every day, but if you have foods once a week or they do a rotational schedule, they may be able to do that without untoward consequences. But, you know, people are different. Now, the big challenge is this issue of gut leakage where people's intestinal mucosal membrane has become inflamed often from free radical exposure. And so free radicals, like if you smoke cigarettes, you see the effects of free radicals with the premature aging in the face. People get smoker's face. And it also damages the inside vessels of their of their blood vessels, which is an interesting thought because you know if you look at um, smokers, only twenty percent get lung cancer. Eighty percent of smokers never get lung cancer, and some people say, well, maybe smoking protects them from lung cancer, and in a way it does because smoking is so damaging to the animal lining of the vessels that they get heart attacks and strokes and die from heart disease before they live long enough to grow their lung tumors. So in a sense, smoking is actually protecting people from getting lung cancer by killing them earlier from heart disease. And the effect, it's the effect of free radicals. Well, you also get free radicals from drinking alcohol. That's why people get cirrhosis of the liver, fatty liver, a scar tissue in the liver that comes from drinking alcoholic beverages. And yet today, if you read the newspaper, you think alcohol is some kind of health food. They're going to tell you, oh, if you don't drink, you should start. It's good for your heart. It thins the blood. Yeah, it thins the blood. And it increases your risk of hemorrhagic stroke while reducing slightly your risk of clotting stroke. You still die, but you die from a bleeding stroke instead of a clotting stroke. It doesn't make it health food. The mm -hmm. resveratrol, the, the powerful antioxidant, comes from the skin of grapes. What people should be told is you should eat some grapes. You don't need to drink <laughs> alcohol in order to get the benefits from plant-based yeah. foods. Well, so, well yeah, the... Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, comical because, uh, you know, the loyal opposition, I'll call them, uh, you know, they're, they have, they know all this stuff works, but they will never tell the public about it. So we have to get rid of the free radicals if we want to get rid of the gut leakage. If you have gut leakage, stuff leaks through, stimulates the immune system uh, to attack itself. And if it attacks your colon, they call it colitis or Crohn's disease. If it attacks your skin, it might be vasculitis or SLE or, you know, rheumatoid arthritis. So these conditions that are all associated with itis or inflammation oftentimes have gut leakage as a component. And the gut leakage comes from the free radicals. So the smoking, the drinking, the eating, the fats, the oils, the fried foods that bathe the body in these toxic chemicals. If you get rid yeah. of the gut leakage, now all of a sudden and you get on a whole plant food SOS free diet, these autoimmune conditions, these conditions where the body is attacking itself often come under control. Mm. You haven't cured them, you're just managing them. You're eliminating yeah. the inflammation by eliminating the gut leakage. And now people can get off the drugs. They can recover. And fasting does that very fast. It does it in a very rapid way. It's just like it allows the taste to neurodevelop more rapidly. If you go on a low-sodium diet, it takes about a month to where food is not disgusting, tasteless, swill. It takes a while for the taste to it. You do a fast, it happens quickly. Mm. You get off, well, uh, go on a low-sugar diet. At first, you know, people have all these cravings. Well, what are those cravings? 
people are eating refined carbohydrates, their blood insulin goes up, the blood sugars get driven down, the brain thinks you're starving, you get this cravings, you have this binging, it's a big problem. You get this ravenous appetite, they think is appetite is actually irritation. And so people are constantly binging and purging and going through all kinds of problems. Well, when people fast, their blood sugar levels stabilize, insulin levels normalize. And then when you go on a whole plant food SOS free diet, there is no vast bouncing of sugars up and down and insulin levels. And so the cravings come under control. The binging tends to go away. People get progressive weight loss. And so that they, they're not dealing with the psychological distress of feeling like the obesity is helpless and hopeless. And mm -hmm. so to really understand how the physiology works, then you can manipulate your behavior. You know what your expectations are and you can be successful. Now, the problem yeah. is, even as you're successful, you still create stress because everybody else around you gets upset. You and your thin body and perky smile. Make well, so, I mean, the average everyday person doesn't have distinctions that what they eat has an effect on their, you know, I mean, you know, it's just amazing. I'll give you, you know, my mom, when she was 85, uh, she had, uh, you know, diagnosed with giant cell arteritis. So I knew that's inflammation. I knew. So I flew in. And we're talking about food and, you know, 90% of what's in a supermarket that really is not food. I'd say probably 95 isn't food. But at any rate, uh, my, so the story is I, I, my first thing was to clean my mother's kitchen and take out everything that is she shouldn't be eating. And I, I think I took eight bags of canned, boxed, you know, eight bags, like hefty bags of food. Arteritis, the thing you took away that probably made the biggest difference was dairy products. Dairy products are like gasoline on the fire of inflammation with that condition. And so just getting rid of the milk, cheese, yogurt, chocolate, and all the stuff that contains the milk proteins, that's probably the single biggest thing that you could have done that would have helped bring that inflammatory process under control. Yeah. Well, it, her blood work went straight down. And, you know, the doctor couldn't care less, didn't want to know. He looked like he was about to die. I said I could help you, too. So long story. So what's a day like for you? We know that supermarkets don't really have food. Um, because there's chemicals, there's glyphosate, there's all this. So what do you eat? What is your day? Like, I mean, I don't, I, I eat kind of once a day. Um, you know, I nibble on fresh things, you know, in between, but my every day is different, but what's a day like for you well, and what I do work, you eat? I work at the True North Health Center. So we have a fabulous food trip there, which is, we have a two acre farm where we grow organic food. We buy from local organic uh, suppliers. Everything we eat is whole plant food. It's all SOS free. It's made from scratch. And so we'll have oatmeal and fresh fruit in the morning, perhaps with some flax seeds or some celery or some greens. We'll have huge salads at lunch and dinner, steamed vegetables, and some kind of potatoes, rice, or beans, some type of complex carbohydrate. It rotates from day to day, season to season. Um, uh, but the food is all whole plant foods, and it's all made, uh, you know, very, it's very simple, actually, to make whole plant foods. We have cookbooks, the Bravo Cookbook, the Bravo Express, the Health Promoter Cookbook. They're all vegan, SOS-free gluten-free cookbooks with recipes so simple even I can make them. And so no know, no meat, no fish, no oil, no salt. No meat, fish, fowl, eggs, dairy products, oil, salt, or sugar. Basically you just tell people, go inside themselves and ask, do they really, really, really want whatever it is? And if the answer is yes, truly yes, then you know. They can't have it. They get nothing. You need a t-shirt that says I get nothing. You get whole plant foods, fruits, salads, steamed vegetables, potatoes, rice, and beans. And you leave away all the greasy, fatty, processed foods that are making people fat, sick, and miserable. And when you do that, there's a very predictable thing that happens. If you're a male, you're going to lose three pounds a week down to your optimum weight. If you're a female, you're going to lose two pounds a week down to your optimum weight. Males will lose 50% more weight because they're rich in something called testosterone, which is a fat-burning hormone. 
You know, if you inject women with testosterone, they lose their fat. And then they get hairy and get cancer and die. Not a good strategy, so I wouldn't recommend it. But if you inject <laughs> men, for example, with estrogen, they get fat, they grow breasts, they get hips. These differences between men and women are largely biological, not psychological. So what does that mean if you're a woman and you're trying to lose weight? It means you have to work twice as hard to get half the results. You know, get used to it. I don't make the rules. Yeah. Wow. I could talk to you all day. I'm going to pass you to Hartman. Thank you for your time and the, and the information. It's fantastic. A real pleasure to have you here on the show, Dr. Goldhammer. And um, I was I listened very carefully when you talked about the diseases, because um, there are so many immune systems diseases in this time right now, and uh, it has all to do uh, with the food. Many things have to do with the food, also with other stuffs, what we have to get in or forced to get in. And um, can you tell what is your experience um, concerning immune, immune system diseases and fasting? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, it's interesting right now that, you know, people are dying uh, from acute infectious disease. And we know that the risk factors include obesity and diabetes and uh, cardiovascular disease and autoimmune disease, those people that have those underlying conditions are at much higher risk of dying. Why do some people die and other people recover from these various illnesses, including COVID? It's because they have vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities to dying from COVID are the same vulnerabilities, interestingly enough, of having death from heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune diseases. So what we could be saying is, gee, maybe we should be working on reducing our overall risk factors by getting rid of the obesity, making the diet and lifestyle changes, beginning exercise, getting our sleep, boosting the immune system, so that if we do get exposed, which ultimately kind of is inevitable, that we have a chance to recover rather than to succumb. Again, whether it's heart disease and cancer and diabetes, which are you know massively more common, or uh, conditions like uh, infectious diseases. So. Uh, Then the question is, what can you do in addition to diet and lifestyle to accentuate the immune system? And so one of the things we've been had a chance to do is look at some of the research that we're doing with fasting and the effect it has directly on the immune system. So it's interesting because some things in fasting go up and some things go down, but all of them tend to have uh, very specific effects on immunological function. For example, uh, IGF-1, insulin growth factor 1, we know that the lower an animal or a person's IGF-1 levels, the longer they're likely to live. Uh, IGF-1 goes down with exercise and it goes down with fasting. And what's interesting, you're going to hear this theme over and over again. The things that improve with exercise also improve with fasting. And you might say, well, wait a second. Why would fasting, where you're resting, and exercise, where you're vigorously active, both have the same biochemical effects on markers associated with aging and health? And it might be that the reason why both exercise and fasting so often cause the same kind of effects is because both exercise and fasting are undoing the consequences of dietary excess. And dietary excess is actually the immunological suppressive factor that's causing people to die prematurely. So all this inflammation and all these variables that we're identifying as causing disease, all our inflammatory associations, both are, can be reduced as a consequence of people that exercise regularly, people that uh, fast regularly with intermittent fasting or possibly longer term fasting like we advocate. Um, leptin, 
uh, is a level, uh, a substance, a biomarker that goes down in fasting. And the lower your leptin levels, the lower the inflammation. The, we know that blood pressure and heart rate go down with fasting, and we've published a study, medically supervised water-only fasting in the treatment of hypertension. We took 174 consecutive patients with hypertension, and 174 people achieved blood pressure low enough to eliminate medication. We have the largest effects that have ever been shown in treating high blood pressure in humans, with an average effect size of over 60 points in patients with the highest levels of hypertension. Um, mTOR has been uh, researched by Walter Longo, which is mammalian target of rampamycin. And we know that the lower your mTOR, the higher autophagy. Autophagy is autophagy, the, the body's ability to eat up cancer cells and, and, and break down products of metabolism. Autophagy is kind of the immune system's way of cleaning house. And in fact, in 2016, Yosh, uh, Yoshinori Yoshimi won the uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work showing how important autophagy was at reversing and preventing conditions like cancer. Etc. Um, we've talked about the microbial uh, balance in the gut being rebooted in, in fasting. And markers like IL-6 and TNL-alpha and other markers of inflammation definitely go down with fasting. And inflammation oxidation in general, that may be one of the biggest effects of fasting and a healthier diet, is lower oxidative uh, uh, inflammation. Um, essentially, what Fasting and dietary change and exercise all work on is this concept of metabolic syndrome, where people have elevated, you know, abdominal obesity and elevated sugars and lipids associated with all these conditions, including uh, increased risk of dying from something like uh, influenza or COVID. Um, fasting reverses all of these markers associated with metabolic syndrome. But fasting doesn't just decrease things, it also increases things. So some things like ghrelin and adenopectin these are markers that are associated with improved insulin sensitivity. So even though you don't necessarily make more insulin, you may make less insulin on a healthier diet, the insulin works better, which is why type 2 diabetics oftentimes will be able to normalize their blood sugar levels and eliminate the need for insulin and, and medications. What does that? Well, fasting and exercise. Exercise reduces insulin resistance. Um, it also gets complicated. Like there's something called AMPK, and when that um, increases, it decreases something else called PGC1-alpha. And that's associated with increasing what's called mitochondrial biogenesis. Mitochondrial biogenesis is the actual production inside the cells of the mitochondria, which are the energy-producing components in the cells. And so when you put a person on a fast, one of the reasons you may see improvements in some of the chronic fatigue and other issues that happen, including, for example, patients we see now with long COVID, they had COVID, they recovered, but now they've got persistent fatigue. Well, you fast those patients, and it's interesting. Many of them get their energy level back, and also their taste, their smell, sometimes persistently is lost, tends to recover. And so, again, I think on a fundamental level, you're getting changes inside the cells itself that may be associated with improvement health. We know that BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, goes up when people's uh, uh, um Brain levels of BHB goes up, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Remember I said that when you go on a fast, your brain changes fuels to bring beta-hydroxybutyrate. Well, the higher the beta-oxybutyrate levels associate with a higher production of BDNF. BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, protects the brain cells from oxidative damage. And it's interesting, if you take rats in a cage and they're identical rats, identical feed, but you give one half of the rats a wheel so it can exercise, the rats that will exercise and they do not develop dementia or Alzheimer's disease. 
And they said, well, why? Why is it that exercise prevents Alzheimer's disease? And they discovered that the rats that exercise have higher levels of BDNF, which protects their nerves from oxidative damage. It prevents that damage to the nerves. Well, exercise does that. Well, guess what? Fasting does that too. And if you periodically fast animals, you can double their lifespan, everything else being equal, just with the change. And one of the things that happens is their BDNF, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor levels, are higher. Um, this is this is very interesting because um, um, I'm very familiar with electric pulse, electromagnetic pulse systems, and they also uh, the University of Budapest in Hungary they have examined is the BDNF factor in rats with electromagnetic pulse, and they could also increase it, ah. and and two hundred percent up to two hundred percent in the working memory and in the remembering memory. So they had to swim to through a pool. They have to remember where was a place to rescue themselves, and then they have to find to create on a creative way to find this thing. And uh, and the BNDF factor. This is so important because it is uh, crucial for uh, for treatment of Alzheimer and dementia. Yeah. There's also this idea of cellular stress resistance and cellular stress adaptation. And Walter Longo did some interesting work where he took rats with cancer, genetically bred rats, they all had cancer, they divided them into two groups. They gave one of the rats enough chemotherapy to kill all the cancer cells, but all the rats died. They got to kill all the cells because if you leave cells behind, they grow back. So, but if you give enough chemotherapy, it kills the rats because it's toxic. Took the same rats with the same cancer, but this time they fasted the rats before and during the chemotherapy. All 30 rats survived, dramatically enhancing cancer-free survival. And what they found was in fasting, the, there's cellular stress resistance and cellular stress adaptation. The idea is that healthy cells are uh, able to adapt to the fasting state because it's a normal biological adaptation. Whereas cancer cells with their higher metabolic rates don't do well in a fasting state because their uh, primary fuel is glucose. And when you put them in a ketotic environment where there's, they're having to burn fat, normal healthy cells can adapt to that, but cancer cells don't adapt as well, and it makes them more vulnerable to chemotherapy. And so now they've started to do this in people too, where they'll use limited fasting or intermittent fasting before and after chemotherapy and apparently getting enhanced benefit because it makes the cancer cells more vulnerable to the treatments. What's interesting is that the biomarkers associated with cancer turning off, turn off even without chemotherapy, just with fasting itself appears to have an effect. So we're learning more about this idea of not only making cancer cells more vulnerable to chemotherapy, but protecting healthy cells from the effects of the chemotherapy. So it has a twofold benefit uh, and it's increasing uh, people's interest. Now, of course, the pharmaceutical companies are saying, oh, that's great. And fasting went from being criminal quackery to cutting edge research. But what they're trying to do is come up with drugs that will do what fasting does. They call them fasting mimicking drugs. So you go and take this drug, it'll do to your body what fasting does, but without that nasty fasting, because, you know, that's not convenient. So um, the thing is, we know now that fasting is turning some things on, it's turning some things off. Um, like I said, if you take rats and periodically underfeed them, or if you do periodic fasting, you can make them live twice as long as they would, um, everything else being equal. Um, what we're hoping is that many of those same changes that have been demonstrated in animal studies will also prove to be true in human studies. And we're one of the few places in the world right now that's doing long-term water-only fasting um, and doing research and looking at that. And in fact, we have a number of papers that will be coming out in the scientific literature this year 
Uh, one of them was done with our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, it looks at the treatment of high blood pressure um, uh, uh, with fasting. Uh, we've completed this phase one clinical trial. We hope to do a phase three clinical trial uh, next year. We've also looked at body composition changes. We used our DEXA scanner to do whole body composition. We were able to show what happens to the body composition before and after fasting. And what we discovered was that visceral fat, the type of fat most associated with inflammation, um, actually is preferentially mobilized during water-only fasting, much more so than on high-protein, high-fat diets or other types of feeding weight loss programs. And so, and for example, a person may lose 50 or more percentage of their total visceral fat, 20% of their total adipose tissue, 4% of lean tissue. And what happens after fasting is lean tissue, fiber, glycogen, and water recover, but fat continues to go down. So yes, you lose weight, you regain weight, but the weight you're regaining after fasting, if you're going on a whole plant food diet, is water, glycogen, fiber, and protein, not fat. The fat loss continues. Um, so it's interesting. So by... Um... As you said, also kind of the cancer cells, the cancer, has, every cell has uh, electricity, which is around a healthy, uh, a healthy uh, cell has 70 microvolts. And the cancer cell has, for example, 20 microvolts. And this means that they, and this means that by the receptors, they cannot exchange the poisons and the nutritions in a very fast way. Healthy cells can do this much better. And by the water, you can refresh the cells and can increase the electricity. Is that correct? Well, what's interesting is I haven't seen data on microvoltage changes in fasting. I'd be interested in doing some work with you on that if we can figure out a non-invasive way, uh, a reliable and reproducible way of assessing changes. I don't know whether or not we're seeing uh, microelectrical changes occur in the fasting state. Do you know if there's a literature on that? Um, I know it only by the... Um... By the, Buddha, by the University of Budapest that they have found out that, for example, aromatic cell has, for example, 25 microvolt, and the cancer cell has 20 microvolt. Yeah. Well, that's and very you, I'm wondering, do we know what the mechanism by which measuring the microvoltage is done? No. So I'd be interested in knowing that, because we could probably do that uh, in fasting patients, and it'd be interesting to see if that's one of the changes that might be associated with what we're seeing clinically. I, I don't know. It's very interesting. I can I can take a look for a doctor in Italy. Maybe he's interested in this kind of I, stuff. I'd and can... love to love to learn about that. And and another question what I have is uh, as you are uh, as you recommend the vegan kitchen or the vegan cooking so much. Um, the problem with the animal protein is as we are as we are established uh, we are consisting of seventy five percent of capillaries. We only have one, we have only uh, some some arteries and that's it. But the most of the body is capillaries and the proteins, they block the capillaries. And if I take the vegan, if I, if I eat only vegan for three months, then the capillaries are clean. Can you, can you well, have I mean, a comment? We, we don't have any experience feeding people greasy, slimy, dead decaying flesh because we, we are strictly a whole plant food diet. So. I know that within days of making dietary change, we see clinical changes when people get off the animal foods. I, I think that there's pretty compelling evidence that, uh, and particularly the, the dairy products, just is a really serious problem. We get more benefit quicker getting people off dairy products than just about any other single behavioral change. Uh, and animal food in general, if you look at T. Colin Campbell's work on whole or his newer book, The Future of Nutrition, he builds a pretty compelling case that the higher percentage of animal food in the diet increases our risk downstream of all these 
these uh, consequences. So again, I don't have a lot of personal experience because we don't ever serve any of those foods to any of our patients. Got it. And and concerning um, concerning the water, or let's say it this way, if uh, if I want to make a daily uh, fasting, for example, for let's say for sixteen hours. Yes. And uh, is it is it important what kind of water I drink? Because do well, I have I to drink distilled that, water? There's lots of different kinds of water you can drink that might be fine, as long as it's pure water. What we don't want is chlorine and hydrogenated halocarbons and heavy metals and cryptosporidium and all kinds of other contaminants in the water. So however you filter your water, ideally you take rainwater from a clean atmosphere and you'd have clean distilled water. That's not necessarily possible today. So we use some type of filtration. We use distillation because it's the most effective and efficient. But you could use reverse osmosis, you could use, you know, block filters, there's lots of different ways of getting rid of the contaminants. Um, you know, for us, uh, especially with fasting patients, what clearly works the best is fractionally steam distilled water that you run up through a post filter, and you aerate it. The argument against uh, distilled water, you know, you'll see these demonstrations by filter companies where they'll take freshly distilled water, throw a fish in it, and the fish dies. Well, it's just because the water is deoxygenated. If you literally pour water back and forth, it becomes oxygenated. You don't have any uh, fundamental problem. Water, as long as it's pure water, I don't really care what form you purified it. Okay, I understand. No, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you, Dr. Goldhammer. Thank you. I'd be really no? interested if you could get me a, a link or a contact to look at uh, microvoltage assessment uh, you know, how we would assess that and see whether or not there's consistent changes that are occurring. I will check. I will check. We'll great. Thanks. Yes. Dr. Dr. Tennant, I'll send you, I have a PDF. Dr. Tennant got into the voltage of cells and cancer and stuff. So he's another guy to look at, Dr. Tennant. It'd be wonderful. I think Mary's up. Yeah, thanks for um, taking the time to be here, Dr. Goldhammer. And we're picking up a little bit kind of with where we were getting to in a practical level, people wanting to try the water fast and you covered, you know, filter your water, doesn't matter exactly what it is. It can be different kinds. Um, and what you mentioned, it has to be just water. Like what happens if someone drinks like black coffee? What does that do to their fast? Well, you know, not only does it, it's going to be disruptive to the fast and incredibly irritating, even more so than it would be in the bed states, much like any drug. You know, you've got a highly addictive nervous system, something like caffeine. You're trying, your body's trying to do a, a wind down mechanism and a conservation mechanism. You put a powerful addictive drug like caffeine in there. Now you're stimulating the body very much like cocaine would. And so now you're going you're gonna, to uh, increase your risk for electrolyte imbalance, uh, orthostatic hypotension, tachycardia, atrial fibrillation, all kinds of irritative substances that can come from caffeine as a whole. And they're going to be potentiated during fasting. So as bad as it is in feeding, it's going to be even worse in fasting. So I definitely recommend people not engage in uh, taking toxic poisons into their body, particularly when they're trying to do the opposite, which is give the body a chance to heal itself and cleanse itself. And, you know, I don't think coffee should ever be used. Coffee has all kinds of downstream problems. Even though it's a commonly used highly addictive drug, that doesn't make it in any way healthy. And the fact that there's a few remnants left of the fact that coffee is derived ultimately from plant-based foods, so there's still a few nutrients that haven't been completely destroyed in the process, hardly makes it a health food. Oh, interesting. How about, is there any other drink you recommend to people who yes. usually, okay. Water. <laughs> nice. Water is really the best, most efficient fluid. Uh, it provides you the hydration you need without the contaminants and the calories or other issues. So we would direct, recommend definitely people drink water for thirst. 
Okay, perfect. And I, I think you you know, I was getting at to to have something like as far as if people are dependent on something for energy. But I guess you're saying if you do your diet yeah, in the first really place, do the water yeah. cleanse, you're gonna. Yeah, I don't recommend people use cocaine if they're fatigued. I don't recommend they use caffeine if they're fatigued. I recommend if they're fatigued, they get the sleep they need and then eat a healthy diet and exercise and lifestyle program so that they can have good energy. People are fatigued because they've exhausted themselves with their chemicals, their drugs, their sleep deprivation, and too much stress. People don't understand. If you're under stress, you're producing stress hormones. You're not designed to be under constant stress. And we are. We drive in cars at 50 miles an hour with people next to us that are talking on their cell phones and eating and wonder, you know, and are we're nervous because we know if they don't pay enough attention, we can die. We're watching news where we watch everybody's most horrific experience in living color, all ongoing basis. We, we, we're being, we're tuning into people who make their living um, uh, sensationalizing uh, these events and presenting, you know, biased viewpoints for the purpose of exciting people and stressing people. We go to horror movies and we, we try to do all these things and our nervous systems become exhausted and, and they're overstimulated, overstressed. And as a consequence, it's not surprising that we get downstream immunologically compromised, health compromising consequences of this exhaustion. We have sleep deprivation and sleep's the only way you can regenerate and rejuvenate uh, uh, energy naturally. And so when we're constantly sleep deprived, now we're stimulating ourselves with powerfully addictive drugs and we're, we're uh, driving two hours a day to a job we hate, working with people we despise for a company we detest, making things we don't believe in because we think we have a short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior deficiency, and that's why we're not happy. We confuse happiness with pleasure. We delude ourselves into thinking if we can get enough pleasure, whether it's enough drugs or promiscuous sexual activity or whatever the, the source of stimulation is, that somehow then we'll be happy. And it's really part of a trap we call the pleasure trap. It's the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's why people are fat, sick, and miserable. It's why we're, uh, we can't even get exposed to a, a viral contaminant without succumbing because we've debilitated our system to the point where we no longer have adequate defenses. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from you too is the common thread in most diseases is that dietary excess and eating the wrong things, which you know, as my background as a pharmacist, I can you know, relate to some of what you're saying and you know, why I found benefit in fasting. Um, and I know you mentioned earlier, you recommend like 12 to 16 hours a day and just, you know, not to recommend to anybody specifically, but generally do you also recommend periodically to do a, a longer fast, like a 24 hour or something like that? Well, I don't, I think actually 16 hours may be a really good max window for routine use. And the reason is you're not going to be kicking in a lot of gluconeogenesis and it doesn't disrupt. Like for example, people can do 16 hour fasting and still maintain their normal pharmaceutical regime. They don't necessarily, because you get a lot of complications if you start extending the fasting, particularly for people on medications. So many medications have to be taken with food. The normal cycle of uh, pharmaceutical induction will fit within that eight to 12 hour feeding window without creating problems there. Um, so, and for people not on medications, you don't necessarily want to, the most expensive part of fasting biologically is that between 16 hours and 14 and 48 hours. That's where the body's using most of it. You're getting most gluconeogenesis. You're getting, you know, the conversion process. And it's also not necessarily the most effective detoxification window. So you're getting, you're spending a lot of uh, biological value without necessarily getting the big benefit. 16 hours, people can do that cumulatively. We've, we've, we do that every day with every patient. We've had it, done it for years and decades. We've got long-term success with people being able to do that. And then occasionally, 
if it's appropriate. A longer period of time from five to 40 days in a controlled setting, whether it's once a year or once every few years, we believe that that may have utility. We can't prove that yet. That's actually the topic of next year's research, which is looking at the biomarker changes that occur in healthy people that use fasting preventatively. Now, we believe that healthy people that occasionally do that week or two of fasting, maybe it's once a year or once every year, may actually get significant cumulative additional benefit, but we can't prove it yet. So we're hoping to be able to prove and discover that that, in fact, is true. What we do know for sick people, a, a longer period of fasting can be very beneficial. We published a lot of papers on those results, but again, that needs to be done in a controlled setting. That makes sense. So for, for most people, um, is it longer than 48 hours of fasting then to see that really additional benefit? It is. That's what we're talking about, five to 40 days. So it's it's not that you wouldn't necessarily have some people would, wouldn't be able to fast five days and four, you know, that may be the best you can do. But it, it's not till you get to about five days where you know how you've adapted to the fast and whether there's going to be a healing crisis or you're in a period of stability. The reason we fast healthy people for a week is because if by the time they've gotten to a week, they don't have a crisis, they probably won't. But if they do, we'll continue the fast until those crises are resolved. Crises are acute processes generated by the body in an attempt to resolve a chronic problem. And they tend to go in inverse proportion to the biological significance of the body. So, you know, the body will generate one area and then another area, not usually all at once. And so you, and you'll see chronic problems become acute, resolve, and then the, another problem become acute, resolve. And we continue to just unwind that until the body's well. And unfortunately, we can't predict that well yet, exactly when that's going to happen or how long, because we don't have reliable non-invasive biomarkers yet. And it's partly because the only people doing any studies with long-term fasting right now is the Truno Health Center. Nice. Yeah, I'd be interested in looking at more of that data, because there's a lot of different things on there from intermittent fasting to, you know, once a month to X amount of hours, you know, for people to kind of practically I would to Walter Longo's work on intermittent fasting. He does a lot of work with 750 calories uh, they use prolon or some other you know substance of it's basically high fat very low protein or lower protein uh and and uh deficit of carbohydrates and he's got quite a bit of research they've got at least almost two dozen active studies underway right now in various research centers looking at that type of intervention uh and that advantage to that is that can often be done safely on an outpatient basis without the rigors of long-term water only fasting you know, restrictions. We're actually going to be hoping to do a study next year with their group looking at the comparing the biomarker changes with long fasting versus, you know, intermittent fasting. Because obviously it's much more practical to do intermittent fasting. And it's product based so that, you know, it's, it has, it's been monetized. There's all kinds of advantages. There's lots of disadvantages to water only fasting. It's just, you know, that's the only way we've been able to get some of these really sick people well. So, you know, that's kind of what we're, we're facing. Nice. I, I'm definitely going to have to to try that as well. I haven't. I guess I've never done a pure, true water fast, so I'm learning well, that. and go through the process in a contained setting, and you may find that it'll be a, a life-changing epiphany kind of experience. And we'd love to tap your brain uh, in terms of, you know, this is where we're really getting a, a lot of our new information is people that have expertise in areas that we're not necessarily specialized in. And you know, we were talking just a few minutes ago about intracellular electricity. And, you know, that is certainly interesting. And certainly uh, we're particularly interested in helping develop systems of helping wean people off medications effectively. You know, that's a big problem for most doctors because they really don't have experience taking people off drugs. They just don't ever really do it. And they're not used to seeing people ever get well. For example, think about high blood pressure. If you go to a physician, they're going to give you one to five different medications. 
They're going to give a diuretic, you're going to give a beta block, you're going to give a calcium channel, whatever it is. And they're going to be told if they do exactly what they're told, they will never get well. They will promise you, take these drugs and we promise you, you will be sick the rest of your life. You will never resolve your hypertension. You will manage some of the secondary effects. Now you'll get chronic cough, fatigue, impotence, and maybe premature death. We won't give you the drugs until your blood pressure rises to a certain level because the death rate from taking the drugs exceeds the benefit until you get high enough to get a you know, reduction from stroke. It's not gonna really reduce your risk of cardiac arrest very much, but it'll reduce your risk of stroke for people with the highest levels of hypertension. And that'll offset the increased death rate from taking the medications to begin with. It's not exactly a very rosy picture. And then people's compliance, most physicians are getting less than 50% compliance because they don't like the impotence and they don't like the fatigue and they don't like the chronic cough and they don't like the secondary symptoms. So our approach is very different. We're saying, look, if you're willing to do really dangerous and radical things, like eat well and exercise and go to bed on time, we can fast you long enough to normalize your blood pressure, eliminate the medications, and to the degree that you're willing to stick to that whole plant food SOS-free diet, you will maintain normal blood pressure forever. You will be able to turn on or off that depending on the degree of compliance. So if you have type 2 diabetes, 80% of our type 2 diabetics will achieve normal blood sugar without medication. And we all know metformin and even some of these other drugs, as effective as they can be, have serious downstream consequences for people. If you have autoimmune diseases, you're told diet doesn't matter. Eat whatever you want. You're just going to be on these very powerful antimiological drugs forever until you go into liver failure, kidney failure, get some secondary effect, in which case they'll try to modify you to something else. And if you have lymphoma, you'll be told diet doesn't matter. And chemotherapy is not that effective in terms of reducing all-cause mortality, so they'll tend to wait, watch and wait until you have no choice. So it's not like anybody's lying. They're telling them the truth. If you do what you're told medically, you'll be sick forever. You'll never recover. Wow. Yeah, that's really great what you're what you're doing with fasting, Dr. Goldhammer. And is there any other things that you want to add, like that you to share with the audience that you might do yourself to stay healthy? Could be, yeah. you know, mentally, physically. I think there's three things that are critical. Diet, sleep and exercise. The diet I've said, whole plant food, SOS free. So eat so much fruits and salads and steamed vegetables. There's not much room for anything else. Eat it within an eight hour window and eat a lot because you got to get a lot of low density food in order to be able to sustain weight. Exercise. I happen to like basketball, uh, but walking, hiking, biking, swimming, a variety of activities that build strength, flexibility, and endurance, really important. Dissipate tension, build strength, avoid sarcopenia, maintain bone density. These are really important activities. Nowadays, people can sit on the couch and never exercise. In fact, men oftentimes hire other people to exercise for them. It's called the NFL. So they, they sit on the chair and they watch people engage in mock warfare, pretending to be part of the winning coalition. And they're so um, debilitated now, they can't even get up to get themselves a beer. They got the chairs with the cooler built right into the chair so they wouldn't have to walk all the way to the, to the, they can't get out and walk all the way into the McDonald's. They've got to go to the drive-through where 40% of the sales take place because walking all the way in would just be too exhausting. Plus they might skip one of the five or six meals a day because you know, it would take too much time. So exercise, diet, and sleep. Sleep's one of our most important activities. You need to go to bed early enough that you can wake spontaneously feeling refreshed. If you have to drug yourself in the morning with caffeine in order to be able to function, you're not getting the quality or quantity of sleep you need. 
And that means sleeping in a cool, dark, and quiet place. It means not being disruptive. And maybe it means we need to do a little bit better job in our stress management. Maybe we don't need to read the paper every single day. Maybe we can just stay informed citizens, but you know, take it in limited dosages. And maybe we can you know, stop spending so much time with energy vampires. Energy vampires are people that do what they do best, and that's make other people as sick and miserable as they are. So by comparison, they don't have to feel so bad. And maybe we need to pick the people we interact with that are, are going to be a little bit more upbeat and positive. I'm not saying you have to go into denial about the fact we live in a world that's not designed to be health-supporting, that's designed to encourage people to be fat, sick, and miserable. But I think we have to try to regulate the amount of stress that people are under, because I think it's taking a significant toll, even more so than people realize. I mean, look what happened here with this pandemic. We know the worst thing you can do to a prisoner is put them in isolation. We put our society in isolation. And they didn't say, well, now I better get healthy so I don't die from COVID. They drank more, they ate more, they got fatter and sicker. We did exactly the opposite of what was probably would be considered health promoting. You talk about COVID weight gain and all this kind of stuff. So instead of taking the opportunity to enhance our health habits, I think it actually compromised them. Um, we um, we made a you know we made as a society a lot of decisions that may not have been ideal. <clears throat> yeah, very true. Thank you, and and I'm just going to pass it back around to to Greece. Well, this is very exciting conversation, very informative. So, Dr. Hammer, let me just give you. A little scenario. I, I worked in a daycare and among people with dementia and Alzheimer's. So then um, I see people with different diets, and uh, I didn't expect that there will be um, people who have lived their lives with uh, the vegan diet, or then there's another one with vegetarian diet, but. They really have bad dementia. And then I will see someone who, same age, maybe 70s, 80s, they're heavy set, but they may have a little dementia, but not as bad as the other one who was on a vegan diet. So what's usually, you know, what's your thought on that? And well, I think some, that a lot of vegan diets are even worse than conventional diets because a vegan diet just means no animal food. And as good as that is, the salt, oil, and sugar, many vegan diets are higher in salt, oil, and sugar, even than conventional diets. I've gotten in trouble at national vegan conferences pointing out that as bad as animal products are, some of this vegan processed crap is even worse than they'd be better off eating meat. You know, the fact is that um, most vegans are motivated by wanting to save the planet, wanting to save the animals, moral, ethical, spiritual driving. They're not being driven by health issues. So many, if you go into vegan restaurants, oftentimes the amount of salt, oil, and sugar that's served in the food is very high. So I don't think that just not eating meat is enough. You know, you can have a vegan diet, Coca-Cola, Oreo cookies, you know, French fries. These are all potentially vegan foods. It doesn't make them healthy. That's why we advocate a whole plant food diet that's SOS free. Whole plants, SOS free. Yes, it's true. That is a vegan diet because there's no animal food, but it's a health promoting diet that's derived from whole natural foods rather than highly processed fractionated heat treated stuff. Also, there is a huge genetic component that makes some people more disposed than others. For example, you know, some people smoke and still live a long life. Other people live healthy diet. So it's not just diet, diet, lifestyle exercise, sleep, stress, uh, and genes all play an important role in why an individual 
develops problems. But if you look as a whole, people on vegetarian diets live an average of eight years longer than people on conventional diets. If you look at the Adventist uh, data, they're living longer. They have lower dementia, lower Alzheimer's rates. They have lower cardiovascular rates. And that's despite the fact that most vegan and vegetarian diets are not what I would consider health-promoting diets. But just not using, particularly, I think, the dairy products, excess amounts of animal food, alcohol, uh, tobacco, these are huge health risk factors that affect us in the long run. You know, the, uh, the ultimate, the, uh, excuse me, the leading cause of death in the United States is heart disease, cancer, and stroke. But that has nothing to do with the actual cause of death, the reason people get heart disease, cancer, and stroke. The reason people get heart disease, cancer, and stroke is smoking, drinking, and eating animal-based foods and highly processed refined carbohydrates. If we focus more on the actual causes of death rather than the leading causes of death, our society would be a lot healthier with a lot less uh, money spent. We spend two and a half times as much money as people in the European Union per person on healthcare. We don't live longer or better. Our healthy life expectancy and our life expectancy are both trailing despite the extra expenditures because we spend the money treating the end results of the disease rather than the reasons people are getting sick. I strongly agree with you with that. Now, what's your thought on blood type um, diet? Um, the Adamo diet, I think, is com almost completely unsubstantiated in terms of substantive scientific support for the claims that A equals B and B equals Z. So I'm familiar with the argument. It's a weak argument. It doesn't hold up under scientific scrutiny. So it doesn't mean there aren't differences, and there may be biological differences for people, but his basic argument that if you have this type of diet, now it's okay to eat meat. That's a good thing. I think it's just, it really falls apart. Thank you so much. Do you have any upcoming programs that you want to share with people? Well, what we do have for your viewers that might be of relevance is if somebody is interested, do they want to know if fasting might be something that for them to consider? They can go on our website, uh, fill out the registration forms, which gets us the medical history. And we offer a no cost phone conversation with me. I'll talk to them about, review their medical history, talk to them about whether this type of an approach might be relevant, and I can refer them to whoever the person is that's closest to them that we know that does fasting supervision or if, they, if, if they're too far away from the Truman Health Center, or um, uh, to hook them up with a doctor. We have a, a telemedicine practice where we have a dozen doctors that we've trained that are vetted in this and that offer Zoom and phone support. So people that are looking for a doctor that's not an idiot that can support them or support them and their local doctor uh, for doing remote work, um, we can hook them up uh, with a doctor that's appropriate to their particular needs. And, and there's no cost for those services. And I think that's something that a lot of people seem to be taking advantage of. Well, thank you so much. Um, anything from the rest? Do you want to, do you have any further comments? The only other thing I'd say is if you really want to get into this and, and see a compelling argument, read our book, The Pleasure Trap, Mastering the Hidden Force and Undermines Health and Happiness. If you don't like reading, get the audio version and listen to it. Uh, it's a disturbing book. It will not tell you what you want to hear, but it will tell you what you need to know to get and stay healthy. The, uh, I'd just like to say the third cause of death in the United States is doctors. Maybe so, uh, <laughs> Maybe I thought that, I think that was... Uh, I thought that was interesting. Also, I realize you're always in black. You're like the Steve Jobs of water fasting. Well, you know, I only wear black because Chef AJ told me that black was the only color that fit my personality. And also there was a sale at Charles Thwaite. So, you know, what can I say? <laughs> That's good. That's great. <laughs> uh, can well, I ask one last quick question? Um, the, there's people who come off vegan, and we know, like you said, that means, you know, French fries and 
can mean a lot of things, but they say they get, some people say they get brain fog and then they have, then they go back on protein and it's, it's like a, a revelation, uh, you know, that I needed meat. Uh, did, do you as a, I mean, do you ever, is this brain fog thing, can it be real? Is it temporary? Have you had it? What happens to people that are getting brain fog oftentimes is they're eating sugar, which they're associating with their vegan diet. Their blood sugar levels go and they get brain fog. Then they eat meat, which they think is protein, but is actually mostly fat. And it tends to stabilize their blood sugar levels. And so then they feel a little bit better. Um, also, sometimes when people stop eating the greasy, fatty processed foods, they start detoxing. They feel like crap, just like they do when they initially when they fast. But if you get through that process, uh, there is no brain fog. In fact, cognitive capacity and any objective measure on people on health promoting diets is accentuated. And in fact, with fasting, you know, it's interesting. Many people have learned that if they fast uh, just before their tests or their exams, they actually score better because uh, they get rid of some of this uh, problem that's associated with blood sugar and insulin levels jumping all over the place. So There's a theory that Pythagoras uh, made you, you know, Pythagoras wouldn't teach until you fasted for 40 days. I don't know if that's true, but. I, I think that uh, the idea that a health promoting plant-based diet is going to lead to brain fog and stuff is that that's not inherent to the healthy diet. It's inherent to some underlying pathology that needs to be fixed. Gotcha. Great. Thank you very much. I'll give it back to Grace. Well, thank you to uh, everyone. One question yeah. concerning uh, concerning the book, cooking books. Yes. Uh, the cooking books um, are they so that you can do it directly, for example, in 10, 15 minutes? So because so if yes. you go to to cooking books, they are most mostly complicated, and you think yes, I don't we want have to a book called have five dinner. Bravo, Bravo Express. No, nothing has more than five ingredients. Everything can be done in just a few minutes, and the, and there he's a fabulous chef but does a really good job in the Bravo Express cookbook, making it really easy because we've learned that you have to make stuff really quick and fast in order to be able to get good compliance. And so all of our cookbooks focus on that, but the Bravo Express was specifically designed to meet exactly that simple ingredients that everybody can get access to that are made. You don't have to be a chef in order for it to turn out tasting really good. And they're all vegan SOS free. Brilliant. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> And so for all of you there watching and you are listening, so, you know, please share this uh, uh, podcast and yeah, go and check out uh, healthpromoting.com, thefasting.org and all the other information that Dr. Alan Goldhammer is available. Okay. And yes, um, wonderful chef Ramses Bravo. I, I'll make sure that I'll repost what him and I did on a podcast. I think I still add, invited him to do a live one. I mean, when I say live, that he has to really like <laughs> get into it. So I'll follow up with him. So thank you and God bless you and God bless everyone. Take care of yourselves. Do what you need to do to stay healthy. Be motivated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Goldhammer. My pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. pleasure.